This week, Intelsat files plan and disclosure statement allocating bulk of value to Jackson subsidiaries. Garrett debtors and allies square off against equity committee. Cedril enters Chapter 11 in freefall. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, LADAM team lead Kyle Owusu will discuss LADAM Airlines. It's Friday, February 12th. The Intelsat debtors this morning filed a plan support agreement, plan, and disclosure statement that would allocate the bulk of the satellite operator's approximately $10.7 billion in estimated distributable value to the creditors of the Intelsat Jackson subsidiaries, which hold the debtors' FCC Spectrum licenses. Intelsat Jackson term loan facility lenders and firstly note holders would be paid in full including 77% of asserted prepayment make-hole premiums for note holders, and Intelsat Jackson senior note holders would receive 95% of reorganized equity before dilution, plus $500 million in cash from exit financing. Cash-to-fund distributions under the plan would come from cash on hand, estimated by the debtors to be $388 million pre-emergence, and proceeds from a new funded debt raised at emergence, which could be in the form of new term loans or new secured debt in an aggregate amount not to exceed $7.5 billion on a gross basis and $7 billion on a net basis after subtracting cash on the reorganized debtor's balance sheet. In addition to the new funded debt, the reorganized debtors would also enter into a revolving credit facility for up to $750 million of availability. The PSA parties include the debtors, members of the Intelsat Jackson Ad Hoc Group represented by Aiken Gump, members of the Firstly Noteholders Group represented by Wilmer Hale, and members of the Consenting Holdco Noteholder Group represented by Paul Weiss. The Intelsat SA Convertible Noteholder Group represented by Strzok is not a party to the PSA. On February 5th, that group filed a motion for standing to bring an action to determine whether the Intelsat Jackson entities or Intelsat SA, are entitled to $4.9 billion in, quote, accelerated relocation payments from the FCC. According to today's disclosure statement, the debtors will object to that motion, which, if granted, could render the plan unconfirmable. The motion is set for hearing on March 17th, with the disclosure statement set for hearing that same day. The dissenting convertible note holders on Wednesday also objected to claims filed against the Intelsat SA parent debtors by U.S. Bank, as indenture trustee for three series of Intelsat Jackson Senior Notes. According to the Convertible Noteholder Group, the claims lack, quote, any basis in law or fact because the Intelsat Jackson Noteholders guarantees from the parent debtors were, quote, permissibly and validly released under the indentures the day before the satellite operator filed for Chapter 11. On Thursday, the group filed a similar objection to proofs of claim filed by Delaware Trust Co. as successor trustee for senior notes issued by Intelsat Luxembourg. The Garrett Motion debtors and their allies, plan sponsors Centerbridge, Oak Tree and Honeywell International, or the COH Group, the Ad Hoc Noteholder Group, and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, on Tuesday objected to the Official Com- Equity Committee's motion to terminate exclusivity. While the Equity Committee took aim at the debtors' proposed disclosure statement and a related motion to approve a plan support agreement and backstop agreements with the COH group. The debtors and their allies called the committee's proposed Atlantic Park back plan, quote, unconfirmable without Honeywell's consent or further litigation to estimate and cram down Honeywell's $1.95 billion in disputed claims. 
while also pointing to the additional leverage allegedly required by the committee plan. The Equity Committee, meanwhile, calls Honeywell's opposition to its plan a, quote, pretext and characterizes the COH Group plan as a needless transfer of over $1.3 billion of value from, quote, small retail investors to a handful of hedge funds, holding a slim majority of existing equity. According to Honeywell, the Equity Committee plan, like the COH Group plan, provides for the issuance of Series B preferred stock, entitling the debtor's former parent to $1.2 billion in payments, but plugs this subordinated instrument, quote, into a significantly modified capital and governance structures for the reorganized debtors, shifting significant additional risk to Honeywell's expected future payment streams. In its disclosure statement objection, the Equity Committee argues that it is the COH Group plan that is unconfirmable. The committee argued that the COH Group plan discriminates unfairly in favor of a select group of shareholders, including Centerbridge, Oak Tree, and Jones Day Group, by giving those investors, quote, the right to purchase $1.05 billion of the COH convertible Series A preferred stock, while allocating only $200 million in Series A preferred stock for a rateable rights offering to all shareholders, including the COH group. On February 11th, the Equity Committee filed a reply in support of its exclusivity termination objection, arguing that the COH group plan would be less expensive than the committee's plan. According to the committee, annual interest and dividend costs would be approximately $19 million lower under its plan. The 3% cash pay under its plan is only 4% of the debtor's own projected EBITDA and less than 10% of free cash flow. Compounding PIC dividends under the COH plan would be more expensive than cash dividends under the committee's plan. All protection of the Series A preferred stock in the committee's plan would be lower than the dilution to unaligned shareholders under the COH plan. And $400 million of the Series A preferred stock in the committee plan is not convertible. A hearing on the debtor's disclosure statement and the Equity Committee's motion to terminate exclusivity is set for Tuesday, February 16th at 11 a.m. before Judge Michael Wiles. Bermuda-based rig contractor Seadrill on Wednesday filed freefall Chapter 11 cases with $7.291 billion in assets and $7.193 billion in liabilities. According to a press release, the debtors seek to, quote, facilitate a balance sheet restructuring which will enable C-Drill to continue to operate its modern fleet of drilling units. The restructuring is expected to, quote, lead to significant equitization of debt, which is likely to result in minimal or no recovery for current shareholders, the company said. Judge David Jones granted the debtors all of their requested first-day relief at an uncontested hearing on Friday. Although the debtors entered Chapter 11 having obtained agreement from only the coordinating committee of various lenders under the company's 12 secured facilities, or COCOM, and not the ad hoc group of RIGCO lenders, the parties resolved their issues related to cash collateral ahead of the hearing, filing an amended proposed order this morning, Friday. Nevertheless, the COCOM and the ad hoc group made clear that they have divergent views on the best path forward for the bankruptcy proceedings. The debtors are not seeking dip financing. Anup Sathi of Kirkland and Ellis, speaking for the debtors, provided the court with an overview of the events and disagreements leading up to the filing. He said during his presentation that, quote, this will be a more contentious case than the first, that is, Cedril's 2017 bankruptcy. Although the debtors entered Chapter 11 without an RSA, Sathi said that the filing was, quote, not a freefall. 
According to him, the absence of an RSA was the result of a board decision, quote, to start the case on an even playing field without endorsing either the COCOM's position, which supports a full enterprise deleveraging, or the ad hoc group, which is committed to pursuing a dual path sale and restructuring process. On Wednesday, the Promisa Oversight Board asked Judge Laura Taylor Swain for an extension of the Feb 10th deadline to file an amended plan of adjustment or comprehensive term sheet, disclosing in an urgent motion that on February 9th it had reached an agreement in principle with the principal parties to the existing PSA that collectively hold about $7 billion in general obligation and public building authority bonds regarding to the terms of an amended plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth. The Employees Retirement System of the Government of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, or ERS, and the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA, Title III cases. The agreement in principle also, quote, builds on the planned support agreements already reached with the Retiree Committee and certain unions, according to the press release issued by the Oversight Board. In the motion, the Oversight Board explains that the mediation process, quote, again proved successful with creditors holding substantial amounts of GO and PBA bonds having committed to support a plan of adjustment. On the basis of the execution of jointer agreements to the existing PSA, the Oversight Board anticipates that holders of over 50% of outstanding Commonwealth-funded indebtedness, quote, will have stated their support for a plan of adjustment. The requested extension of the deadlines to March 8th will allow the mediation team to schedule and conduct additional sessions with parties in interest and the oversight board to further mediation discussions and increase the foundational support across a broad spectrum of creditor claims for a plan of adjustment. In seeking the extension, the oversight board said it is authorized to represent the mediation team and the existing PSA parties to support the request. The motion adds that the Commonwealth supports the extension and, quote, believes a workable economic framework has been achieved, but continues to communicate that it will only support a plan of adjustment with no pension cuts. The Oversight Board said it is aiming to execute the agreement and make available the documentation to other parties within a week to allow other parties to join the new PSA. After reserving decision in July 2020, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit on Monday issued an opinion affirming on appeal Judge Laura Taylor Swain's February 5th confirmation of the third amended Title III plan of adjustment for COFINA. Top red stories this week included Volaris debtors reveal comprehensive settlement with RCF lenders, others in fourth amended plan DS. Chesapeake Energy Corporation emerges from Chapter 11, reorganized common shares to commence trading on February 10th. Navient calls involuntary petition utterly frivolous, sanctionable, petitioning creditors file amended involuntary petition. And now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, hello everybody. Greetings from Texas, where there's a cold wind blowing in from the north, and it is literally in the teens. There's plenty going on this week, mostly the earnings variety, the exception being Monday, February 15th, which I think is one of those state-sanctioned holidays. Tuesday, February 16th, or arguments in Hertz, earnings from Avis, Occidental, and Comstock stock. Wednesday, February 17th, hearing in Zohar, state relief hearing in Gulfport, earnings from Laredo Petroleum and Martin Midstream, among others. Thursday, February 18th, is more the same, this time featuring SM Energy and Antero Resources. Friday, February 19th, Gulfport's back with a DS hearing. That's all from me, and have a good weekend. And now for this week's Deep Dive, here's Kyle on LATAM Airlines. Thanks. I'm Kyle Lewusu, Director of Emerging Markets Credit for Reorg, and I am going to give a rundown of Chilean airline operator LATAM Airlines Chapter 11. A hearing has been set for February 24, 2021 at 11 a.m. Eastern. 
amongst other items, LATAM's motion for entry of an order authorizing implementation of alternative dispute resolution procedures will be heard. To date, about 5,700 proofs of claim have been filed against the debtors. LATAM says it needs to enter procedures to resolve concerns raised by the creditors committee regarding foreign claims. In addition, the debtor and its advisors have been busy right-sizing the aircraft fleet by negotiating consensual stipulations with aircraft counterparties. LATAM will also need to develop its short-term and long-term business plan and explore potential exit financing with lenders, all with the aim of preparing, negotiating, and eventually confirming a Chapter 11 plan of reorganization. At a January 27th omnibus hearing, Judge James Garrity of the Southern District of New York approved the LATAM Airlines debtor's request to extend their exclusive periods to file and solicit votes on a Chapter 11 plan to June 30th and August 23rd, respectively. Milestones under the debtor's dip financing include a requirement to file a plan within 15 months after petition date, which would be around mid-August 2021. So we would not expect to see a Chapter 11 plan of reorganization filed prior to June 30th, though we do not completely discount the possibility of an early filing. The debtor's 800 million 7% bonds due 2026 have traded up about 35 points in the last three months and are now trading in the mid-70s. On February 10th, LATAM reported total available seat kilometers, or ASKs, for January of $5.5 billion, representing a 60% year-over-year decline from January 2020. The Chilean airline operator estimated that its February ASKs could decline about 65% year-on-year. In a quote-unquote scenario dominated by increased government restrictions on air transport worldwide, LATAM collects and reports operating data for its passenger operations in three categories. One, international, connecting more than one country. Two, domestic operations in Spanish-speaking countries, including Chile, Peru, Argentina, Colombia, and Ecuador. And three, domestic Brazil. The strength of the debtor's recovery will likely depend on international travel developments. In 2019, international ASKs represented about 55% of LATAM's total ASKs. International ASKs represented about 57% of the total amount in 2018 and 56% in 2017. LATAM Airlines' cash balance as of December 31st, 2020, fell to $1.695 billion from $1.811 billion in the previous month. In June, Brazilian airline operator Azul signed what it called a historical code-share agreement with LATAM Airlines. The airline operators started selling tickets together in August, and under the program, LATAM can use Azul's flights to connect Azul's customers. So, for example, on routes where Azul operates more frequently than LATAM, LATAM can potentially cancel the route, which would in theory, help the debtor uh, improve its operating expenses, but still has the capability to service its customers through Azul's flights. So, in other words, LATAM can use Azul's flights to connect LATAM's customers. Sorry, I said Azul's before. There is potential to expand the code share agreement for international routes 
and there is also a potential for a joint venture in the future, although a JV would need approval from Kaji, Brazil's competition authority. LATAM's capital structure includes about $5 billion of secured debt and $2.5 billion of unsecured debt, as well as $2.9 billion of cap capitalized operating lease liabilities. The secured debt includes $3.3 billion of SPV financing, $621 million of debt related to three aircraft owned by Japanese entities and leased to LATAM Airlines Brazil, and $61 million of debt related to seven aircraft which are subject to lease agreements under which an entity in Spain leases aircraft also to LATAM Airlines Brazil. The SPV financing also includes the WTC notes. LATAM's first day declaration shows a 777.5 million claim related to Wilmington Trust, one of the debtor's five largest secured creditors and trustee of the WTCs. Part of LATAM's fleet right-sizing efforts involve rejecting aircraft lease agreements. So there may be unsecured lease rejection and or deficiency claims featured as part of the debtor's Chapter 11 plan of reorganization. For example, the $3.3 billion includes $849 million of debt related to 18 financial leases, which, following initial petition date, have been rejected by the debtors. On October 8th, a $1.15 billion disbursement was made under LATAM's $2.5 billion DIP credit agreement. LATAM's $700 million 6.875% bonds due 2024 and $800 million 7% bonds due 2026 were issued by LATAM Finance Limited. LATAM Airlines Group is a guarantor under the indentures. LATAM Finance Limited's assets include a $1.3 billion intercompany receivable from Pueco Finance Limited, a special purpose vehicle. Pueco's assets include intercompany receivables from Land Pax amounting to $727.8 million, Transporte Iro for $256.6 million, and Land Cargo for $323.3 million. Land Cargo is a main cargo operating entity within the group. Transporte Iro is a main passenger operating entity. Land Pax, through a holdco, owns just under half of another main passenger operating entity, Aerovias de Integracion, and Landpax also owns both indirectly and directly 99% of LATAM Airlines Ecuador, another passenger operating entity. Land Cargo, Transporte Airo, and Landpax do not have ownership of the company's Brazilian entity, TAM SA, suggesting that the Brazilian operations may not be subject to a double dip claim should one arise. The LATAM Airlines ad hoc group of bondholders filed a verified statement pursuant to Rule 2019 of the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure, which shows that Centerbridge, 140 Summer Partners, and Citigroup Global Markets have joined the group, while Double Line, LMR Partners, Pentavita, and Warlander are no longer members. The verified statement, dated January 20th, shows Centerbridge Holder, Centerbridge Partners, sorry, as a holder of 30 million tranche A dip commitments and 16 million tranche C dip commitments, as well as 34 million of the 2027 WTCs and 108 million of 2024 and 2026 bonds. 140 summer partners held 18 and a half million 2024 bonds and 2026.3 million 2026 bonds, and Citigroup Global Markets Distressed Trading Desk 
held the variety of securities across the structure, 7.5 million 2024 bonds, 13 million 2026 bonds, 234,504 2023 double ETCs, 17.5 million 2027 double ETCs, 24.7 million of LATAM's revolving credit facility, and 835,000, roughly, of other unsecured claims. Although the debtor's motion for entry of an order extending the debtor's planned filing exclusivity period was approved, the LATAM Airlines ad hoc bondholders filed a limited objection to the motion on January 20th, asserting that the debtors have not meaningfully engaged with the ad hoc group, nor have they begun discussions and negotiations regarding the terms of a viable Chapter 11 plan. Specifically, the limited objection says, the debtors have not provided further detail or documentation regarding material intercompany claims disclosed in their own schedules and statements, including receivables valued at over $1.3 billion that are ultimately owed to LATAM Finance, the issuer of the debtors' $1.5 billion New York bonds. Reading between the lines, I think that that means that the creditors are looking for loan documentation so they can verify the existence of the intercompany loans. The intercompany uh, loans are disclosed in the schedules and statements. However, having official loan documentation would allow the creditors' advisors to properly confirm the existence of these intercompany loans, and then the parties can go forward and draw up a plan um, potentially based on recoveries from various operating entities. On January 27th, the ad hoc group filed a notice of withdrawal of its limited objection. So again, reading between the lines, it could be that um, the ad hoc group and the debtors um, are now engaged in discussion around uh, the intercompany liabilities and the creditors, the ad hoc group rather, are satisfied with the information that was given. However, it remains to be seen exactly what's going on with the, the ad hoc group, the debtor, those negotiations and how um, it relates to the limited objection and then the, the notice of withdrawal. So to recap, where are we? Well, the debtor is still assessing claims, right-sizing its fleet, and needs to come up with a business plan in order to prepare a formal plan of reorganization. On timing, our base case is that a plan could be filed anytime between June 1st and August 30th, though of course a filing could come earlier or the debtors could seek to extend their exclusivity period and or renegotiate dip milestones. On the operational front, Investors and analysts, like everyone else in the world, will be paying attention to international travel developments because growth in international travel would help LATAM's recovery. Issues regarding the debtor's cap stack include the size of potential lease rejection and or deficiency claims since those could potentially dilute the unsecured claims pool as well as how potential intercompany receivables could affect recoveries for 2024 and 2026 note holders under the eventual plan of reorganization. Finally, the ad hoc group, which filed a limited objection to the debtor's exclusivity motion but then withdrew it, is growing in size, and as of January 20th included Centerbridge, 
a well-known dis large distressed fund that is providing part of both tranches of the debtor's dip. Thank you very much to our listeners. Back to you, New York. Thanks, Kyle. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into another Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all of our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, plus Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. We hope all of your families are healthy and safe, and we will see you next Friday. Thanks a lot.